0: First, I want to start by thanking you, and not only for talking to me again, but I was thinking about when we met. I was thinking about, I I think it was a Michael McClure reading, I'm not really sure. But that was like, yeah, that was like 15 years ago, 17 (coughs) years ago, something crazy. I just moved here with, uh, it was, my life was not going well at all. And we had a little chat and you gave me your phone number or your email and said, just get in touch. Uh, will you know, we'll have a chat. And I did, and you invited me over. Uh, you made me lunch. You made me Borscht. I remember. Um, and then you, uh, we talked about Duncan. You, you, you let me a dissertation about Duncan and we kept coming across each other in different places and then you um, you were the first guest in my show three as we ascertained three years ago uh february 2019 and you invited me to that reading that comfort duncan conference that we did here and i just wanted to thank your generosity i you have no idea how much it meant when i moved to this country i didn't know anyone i you know, I, it was it was hard. It was a hard moment, and and your generosity and the conversation that I could uh, talk to a poet about poetry, about things that matter to me that was in, in nowhere linked to academia. Uh, it meant the world. So that's the first thing that I wanted to say. That's, Thank that's, you yep. for. Right, stop
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, because I mean, I mean, one uh, I mean, of the one of the tenets of my being, which goes, I mean, we could get to the psychology of all this, but it goes back to the beginning, um, was inclusion. And so this is all of which to say that the value that I place upon you, I mean, if you want to measure it, you were invited to that Duncan thing. I wanted you in here because I knew you had been doing the same kind of explorations in that work that I've been doing, you know, and I can't measure it. It's in another language. I don't know how good or bad it right. sounds good, you know, to me when you read it out loud. But uh, but I could tell your 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 love of it and, and wonderfully enough the last time somebody walked up to me and started talking to me about Duncan and said, can I come to lunch? It was Grassa Capina, who uh, was, uh, that was the the thesis you were reading. Yeah. She was at Coimbra, and the next thing she said after, I think, four years of us chatting, whenever she would come to America and me sending her off to Buffalo, she said, you need to come over here. Yeah. And that brought me to, to 30 years ago this May, and um, and that's when I met Isabel. Wow. You know, and so this, it, you just, as I look back on it, it's just, Constant openings into this this hallway or that hallway as Duncan would say, you know, that's the passages business, right? right, right. Um, and it, 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 It's really really true and uh, I mean like I was saying about collage. I, I mean when I first uh, met Robert, you know, I was just crazy, you know, just it was like being it, it he describes it you, you fall in love with with the work the guy was really fun and wonderful, and you know, uh, I was happy to go just sit there and listen. I didn't feel any of that uh, need to you know to fight the bull and and, right. and, and argue yeah. with him or anything like that. And so when it came to Jess, I mean, Jess was there. Um, I knew he was an artist, but I, I said, I, I, I've got one master that has just eaten me alive in my heart. I don't need two, yeah. you know. And then Jess had a show in Berkeley, and I finally said I was going to lunch, and I, I, out of politeness, I should go. And it, it was it was like the Zen slap of, you know, and uh, it, and this is what I valued the most because it really put a marker down. You, see, you think you're using your imagination? <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> Here's somebody that is just you know embracing all the different possibilities of form and function and, and the physical forming uh, of something, you know, you, you can do anything which sounds wild and crazy and wide open and yet the second you propose that, you realize how limited <laughs> your imagination is, you know. So the break for me w- with everything was with these little junctions of stuff like running into Jess's work, running into Robert's work, running into the people that Robert was saying you should read uh, but in his writing. Not, never, in, never once did I go to the house and he said, you should read Zukowski, you should read the, none of that nonsense. It was always encountered in his essays or in his poetry. Yep. But there was this whole crew of people. And so I would run off to read Creeley, for example, and go, that ain't like Duncan. Right. And I would go to read, all, and same with Olson, whatever. None of this is, wh- why is he, you know, and. Because there wasn't a school there, right? It, it was not. He was not trying to get imitated. He didn't want me to imitate him. Yeah, that was the the one caution he's giving me. You're running a little close right. to me here, you know. And I've always worried about that. And in fact, that was the only time he ever commented on a poem, that was the initial thing. I've always worried that I haunt you too much. But this poem, you're out on your own. It was clean in a way. I did not want to imitate him. Yeah, I thought he was already saying what i've been trying to say in this profound way and it was like i mean it was it was literally like somebody putting a cup down and you go oh what a great idea <laughs> you know yeah. yeah, yeah. of course i'm not going to drink out of the spout of your your press pot uh, you know i have been doing that for years i i can put it in a cup huh that's incredible and and so there was not uh, you know and and i was in even early in my in my 20s as I started to read or try to read him um, and Remind me to come back to that. But I was in conversation with him. I was talking I'm dr I'm talking to those poems. I'm talking to Duncan in my poems, right. you know, I, I in Many ways I still am, you know Right. But to, to flip back to what I just said to remind me, I mean, the first time I looked at a Duncan poem on the page, I mean, I heard him out loud first in the film and then at Berkeley in, in the passages readings uh, in 1970. Mm-hmm. And when I got my little book that my teacher gave me, which is uh, that that little chapbook up there, uh, uh, Fragments of a Disordered Devotion, I literally didn't understand what the hell the poem said right. as I read It was quite... Perplexing and alarming, because you would think, okay, uh, you know, I can. I mean, I've been listening to this guy, and, and but I was not mature enough in my reading to actually be able to take it in. So I was reading it almost, you know, I, I, I mean, talk about passion. I was just reading it because it was there. I was mouthing. It was like mouthing into the language right, somehow.
0: Right. And that and that brings me to one of the things that uh, when we started having a conversation over email about getting together and having a chat, you said you're thinking about sound as meaning. And now you mentioned that you were, were listening to Duncan read his poems. And then when you were reading them, they made no sense. There was there the enjoyment, the delight to go into a language that you don't necessarily intellectually understand, but you are like feeling the rhythms, feeling some of the images is... Um, so, how do, how do you see that, listening to Duncan and reading Duncan, a little bit more of that? Like, there's two different levels of experience in that poetry.
1: Well, I mean, listening to Duncan, and you can't imagine, I mean, between Robert and the Grateful Dead, I mean, I went to everything that I possibly could early on, you know, and you would just get lifted up and carried away. Right. And uh, through good, bad, indifferent, and he gave long readings. I mean, those readings were all hour plus, easily. And and him and just read. Yeah, yeah, just him and I, I remember the first time somebody said, you know, you can only read for 20 minutes and, and Bill used to say this but after 20 minutes. Nobody's listening anyway. And I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah <laughs> um, He's kind of right uh, But there's a, another action that's going on there and recently what I finally came upon um, and this is going back to all my playing around with Emily Dickinson and I, I was sitting one afternoon and I said yeah, the difference between Dickinson and Whitman, is that Whitman has something profound that he sees that he wants to say, right? And so he finds the words to say that, and he's a good enough poet that those words are pull-in song and just spill out. Emily, I think, hears things. She hears sounds, and she trusts that those sounds will deliver her two meanings. Uh, meanings right. uh, eventually, right. yeah. And but it, she doesn't have to, you know, uh, it, where the sounds are taking her, she hasn't got, you know, uh, she's not trying to make a pithy observation because there's too much language. I mean, she could, she. I mean, if you look at those poems, she could have cleaned up uh, so much stuff. Uh, I mean, I was working again this morning uh, uh, on the transcriptions I've been doing and uh, in the Gentian poem, you know, the phrase, Obviate parade, you know, is really cumbersome, yep. <laughs> and she wanted that there. She wanted you to trip over that phrase because it stops you, as the obviate parade does, and uh, and and it's so she is moving constantly towards that. If I got the sound cluster right, the meaning is going to come out of this, right. and despite me, right? And right. It, it, there's a, a trust there. Whereas Whitman, and, and and we're not judging here, right? I mean, that's the most important thing I think we can say that this whole binary—this is the good poetry, this is the bad poetry—is hogwash. Yeah, uh, this is a different feeling for things. It, it's like having fish and steak. I mean, you know, or two different people like oh, having two different friends. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. It, 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 and and we're we're so hooked, especially in our culture right now, into this binary world of you know, it's this or it's that, and. Yeah. It is really not true. It's not either, and, uh, and if you can just kick back and, and, and just in, enjoy what somebody is doing, yeah. and that's what I like about Duncan, because that's his whole metaphor about you wouldn't walk into a field and say that tree doesn't belong here. Right. It's just stupid, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and yet that's what the critic does is why has the poet, you know, and, and that brings me back to what you said about you know what's it about, um, it's not. It, uh, to me, the work has never been about something. Yeah. Uh, where, uh, and, and, But you have to flush that out because that doesn't mean it's meaningless or, or unaffecting. It's that you're not, it's not school. You're not going to get the test at the end of, right, of reading right. the poem. There's, there's no need you know. to have that. And I, I remember when Isabel first got here, she was uh, assigned, the, she was still in school, and she was assigned the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And she was going crazy. We went and sat in a park and I just said, you know, what do you hear? And she says, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't need to know what I hear. I need to know what this poem is about. And I said, but that that it doesn't make any sense yep. as a question. And uh, the metaphor that I've come up with for it is that if I said to you, I have a party, and you really need to be there tonight eight o'clock. Can you go? Please, trust me, this is going to be important. And you kind of roll your eyes and go, all right, Michael, <laughs> you know, I'll go. And you arrive at this party, and you may not know anybody there. You're trying to figure out why you're there. Why why, why have I arrived at this particular party? There's a thousand things I could be doing, a thousand different poems, a thousand different pieces of art. Why am I at this party, outside of the fact that This guy that I kind of, you know, trust a little bit, told me this was really important. You go through the whole party. Not to extend this out because I will go on way too long. But you meet people, you eat, you drink, you do this, you do that. Um, You chat with a woman over in the corner that you, you, you had seen before someplace else. And the next thing, you're home the next morning. And I come by for coffee. And I sit down and say, okay, what was that party about? You would look at, them, what the hell kind of a question is that? Yeah. I said, well, wh- you know, what was the hidden symbolic significance of your party, you know? What meaningful thing happened to you at the party? And it was, it was just, it's just not a question yeah. that we entertain as daily living, right? Now, if I said, so, what happened at the party? we, we can talk about a poem that way. What, what, What the hell's, what is there on the page? Yeah. And uh, if you can be brave enough to articulate and say, I don't know what this means, but I hear sounds yeah. there. Um, and I think of, uh, you know, Robert Pinsky, whose poetry couldn't be more in another direction than my desires are. Yeah. I admire him as a human being greatly and as a proponent of poetry. And I replaced him uh, on, the, on the editorial board at Agnes. Right, And uh, he was leaving, and Oscold decided he wanted a crazy on the, <laughs> on the panel. Right. And I brought in one of Angie Malenko's poems, and I slipped it into this, into the, we, we got these buckets, literally, of poems that supposedly have been sifted by the interns, and I dropped that into everybody's bucket, and somebody, I, uh, we may know them in common, so I won't mention names, <laughs> you know, picked it up like they were holding a dead rat and said, who in God's name let this get into the bucket? And Penske, to his credit, said, hold, I saw that too, hold on. And he opened it up and he said, may I? And he said, whoever this is, don't say anything, okay? So I'm sitting there, you know, going, I was turning red, to be honest with you. And Robert said, this is not my kind of poetry. I would never want to write this poem listen to this and he started reading it and showing this group of people what was going on in Angie's poem now and and his defense of this poem as a beautifully made thing and at the end of it he said now do we need any more defense of this Uh, can I just put it in and I'm like you know but that that,
0: the the metaphor of the party is is, is a uh, it functions really well because it's not about anything it's a celebration, and I like it even more because at some point I was going to touch on the idea of poetry as, or not as, because that is not, but the generosity of poetry, the gener like the the the, the poetic language or the language of a poem or the words on a page, the work of a poet, uh, is I think is generous, is generous with the world, is generous with the time you are your in the time you spend reading the time you spend working on your poems sounding the syllables the sound going to a reading you you mentioned in the previous show about how you like to connect with and i want to go back to that in a more explicit way in terms of what has the pandemic and the lockdown how how, how has that affected you but before that you like to connect to people, you like to create that community. And that generosity is, I think, like the party, like a party is a gift. And I think that comes in this sort of, you don't in this sort of uh, idea of poetry, you don't have to have a meaning, you don't have to have, like, at the end, this is the clue. I I dislike those movies or those Books that have, oh, if you just under, if you look at Leonardo, right, and you measure from, you know, the smile to the nose to the thing, you get a triangle, and that triangle becomes the key to unlock a vault. It's like, no, just look at the thing. It's absolutely gorgeous. You don't have to say anything. Just admire it and feel well.
1: Or, you can look at the triangles too. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to exclude anything.
0: But that's not. But it's not like it's. Yeah, not excluding it because obviously you can have all the all the sort of hidden meanings that you want, but it's not the ultimate
1: meaning. No, no. That no, is yeah, the thing. I mean, the ultimate meaning is, is is the the joy of it. Yeah. You know, the the giddy, silly joy of it, and yes. that can take on you know so many different guises. Uh, I mean, mean, uh, think of the difference between Susan Howe and Carol Weston. Yep. And, you know, is one better than the other? Uh, I mean, I could make a case, but then what you do is you start pulling out, uh, uh, there's certain drawers that you open and you say, this is what I'm trying to Find or fill, or you know, and and this is the reason. And then uh, you go off and hear the other, and uh, and you're just sitting there perplexed and profoundly. You know, I mean, there's. I was talking with a friend in Chicago, and we were talking about what Susan's house work going to look like in a hundred years. Right. And I think people are going to, I you know, this is projection. Yep. People may find it to be the greatest jewel on the face of the earth as, as an opening into uh, just an opening. Um, they may be perplexed by it uh, and may be dismissive of it as being, having been some kind of strange fad. It, it's not, yeah. because when you sit through one of her readings, it is one of the most profound experiences that one can have at a poetry reading, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Um, But I'm always, uh, there was a a great introduction with the guy, Chad Walsh, who was at Beloit College, and they had Olson come read. Right. And in his introduction, he had the intestinal fortitude (laughs) to say, I don't get it. I don't get it. He said, but I was sitting there, and we would walk out of his, and he was doing talks. That was the poetry and truth lectures that he did. And he said, but the students were buzzing, just buzzing. And I would say to them, so what was he saying? And they would just look at me (laughs) and like, what kind of a question is that? Weren't you there? And they knew what he was saying. But the whole idea that knowing should then lead to some kind of a little story that you can tell, a rep- or a replication of what got just got done.
0: Yeah.
1: That's a whole other issue. that's science. Can you right. replicate your experiment when you just went through this profoundly moving thing? you know, okay, replicate the story of that, and make me feel what you just felt. It's crazy. Yeah. That, yeah, and yeah. that's not what that work does.
0: And the, that takes me to one thing that I was reading. And poetry before language, that Duncan essay, which is absolutely gorgeous.
1: Yeah, the the introduction to the Jabez, right? I think I that don't is. I don't know
0: where. It, I got it. I, the the yeah, one that I have sure is, is the, yeah. the, the complete essays and stuff. Yeah, so I yeah. don't remember exactly where he published it. But it's basically the quote is At some point before words, there were all the sounds that the mouth, the lips, the tongue, the glottis, the tooth delighted it a delight is a fact, and yeah. which were later hidden in all the alphabets so that is before is the enjoyment that the delight of making sound the delight of yeah.
1: how you speak the temple, tempo well, your... and there you've got the sound business right because i mean this is not this is not a metaphor he actually believes that all that stuff is hidden in the alphabets right i right? mean yeah, yeah, uh, capital b belief real. there's and he, and if he positions himself correctly he will release that yeah you know and 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 that's you know the the, the beauty of that whole thing that yeah. you know it's it and that's what puts you in a in, in a different place
0: right right
1: but uh, it's it's a, it's a pain in the ass for the critic who's asked to assess or analyze a book for a magazine you know is right. this a good book should you read you know and and to go in and say oh I was blown away, and <laughs> not be able to say why you were blown right. away. Um, it, it's you're you're, you know, trying to you know punch a a, a peg into a hole, right. you know, and and it's it's kind of a, a hopeless you know thing to be trying to do. And I have to to be, in all candor, I've gone back and forth between thinking Duncan is too much a center of my poetic thinking. I need more, which got me to read more because right. I know I would I, I literally uh, but I was 30 years old before I really voraciously started to read other people I started out with Michael Palmer so I was in good shape you know yeah, I just yeah. stumbled into his work and was like, okay here's somebody that's more my age that's really doing something here and I started to expand out but what I finally came back around to after being teased I mean like you know the people I'm talking about, I won't mention any names, just tortured me, you know, over, you know, everything's Duncan out of your mouth. And they were right. But what I finally said to myself is, what I can actually say is that it was me that saw him. Yeah. He didn't come to me and say, you get my work, you know. I saw his work. I saw the value. You saw something there. I saw something there, to as I did with Stein, yeah. and and my and my crew was, I mean, early on. and This is before '25 was, um, the Grateful Dead, and uh, probably Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton for for rock and roll. But as absolute center, it, Clapton and Beck go back to like sixth grade when I right. discovered I discovered the blues. Moved away from the Beatles, there was another kind of music. And all that we could go on for the next hour flows into the Grateful Dead. And what I was watching the Grateful Dead do was come out and stand in front of us and attempt to have something happen. Right. With them amongst those people that were on the stage, you know, musically. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. I can hear Joe Torres saying, why would I want to spend <laughs> you know, 20 bucks to go see somebody that had, you know nothing happened that night and we loved it you know you would walk because when it did happen it was profound right. and then i stumbled into olson who's talking about a stance toward reality and i it, that immediately connected to me to to the grateful dead they were placing themselves in a place where they could possibly create right, right right that was the they had a stance if we do this with enough sincerity you know something might happen
0: so so we are uh in this beautiful uh space called the press room and why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do here describe the place if you can a little bit
1: i'll never reveal that <laughs> <laughs> i'll be arrested well i mean it goes back and forgive me for chewing but no, no, boy. i've had enough caffeine now that i'm
0: yeah i'm a little bit like yeah
1: um it goes back to what I was saying about and what you so sweetly said uh, about community. And I can't tell you how much uh, your thoughts about our meeting mean to me. Um, because it, it's it, like it, at the moments of uh, greatest despair, uh, which I mean, and, I, and I, I, I run between great joy and, and absolute despair. At what we're doing, you know, whether or not it, you know, why am I bothering? You know, is the feeling. And um, and (laughs) your comments, your invitation to do this came on top of um, uh, Chloe. um, um, Jesus, I'm spacing on her name. From Harvard, wonderful poet who who read for me. I can't think of her last name. Oh Garcia Roberts thank god <laughs> I adore her she's <laughs> yeah, she's awesome yeah, yeah, she, she, she really was, is you know, uh, I, I think she's one of the finest people writing around here right now and she was at the airport at uh, in Philadelphia and after AWP and somebody came up to her and said Oh, it? you're reading in the press room you know and it was really great to you know to hear your work out there and she was saying i i was realizing that this is why i do this is to have that connection between people and right. And so, I mean, you, as one works, you have the thought of, I mean, and you're one of the people in my head, quite honestly, that will actually maybe take this seriously um, and, and not be rolling their eyes going, you know, you know, why don't you write about something normal, you know, or, or why don't you write about one thing, you know, and that you might, you're the kind of person in my head that has enough curiosity that maybe... You know? And, and if you came to me, you amongst, you know, and said, you know, Michael, I read this whole book. <laughs> it just doesn't work, man. <laughs> it, it sucks. I would take that seriously. I, I wouldn't stop writing or some stupid right, thing yeah, like right. that, but I would, I, I would listen up. And so, I mean, and the clues and the messages are, are, are few along the way, and, and always have been. Uh, when I was young, I worked in absolute isolation, Went into town for Robert Duncan readings. I didn't know other poets and stuff. And when I finally wanted to get out of that whole thing, it is I mean, it, it, this was at the not the urging, but the the nose slap <laughs> like, from Sid Corman, because I had written to been writing to Sid, and I wrote to him saying that I had sent out manuscripts um, to get readings here in Boston, and. Uh, yeah, you know nothing. Yep. Uh, the, the one place uh, the, over at the Trident on Newbury Street, and uh, they'd had the manuscript for quite a while, and I finally very I sent them a postcard. And said, I just wanted to check and make sure you got my manuscript. And the comment, the postcard was, "We did not for us." That was it. You know, yeah. and, and and at that point, I was writing to Sid, and I said, "You know, what the hell do I have to do to get a reading? I, I know what I'm doing is not the Cantos, but I, I also know a I can read." I've been doing it since high school, and B, I care and the work is okay. you know. And he said, if you want to do a reading, start a reading series because you're going to meet everybody you need to meet and everything else will flow out of that. Right. And so when I started the original word of mouth reading series, I mean, the first person up was Bill Corbett, who I kn- knew his name only because uh, he was reading with somebody, around here was somebody that I knew from San Francisco as a poet, I didn't know uh, in San Francisco. And so uh, I I, I can't even remember the actual sequence of why I landed upon Bill, but I walked into the Grolier and I said, do you have any of this William Corbett? And Louisa sold me um, Schedule Rhapsody, I think it is. And uh, I sat down and read it. It was just like, oh my God, this is absolutely, Freaking gorgeous, yeah. just gorgeous, and so I sent him a postcard and asked him to read. And from him, uh, he was uh, you know if he would if he was here with us, you know he would be shaking his head. You know he, he was the silent partner of the reading series, right. because he would send people. You know, you would be coming into town, and he couldn't get anything for them at MIT or, and, and and forget Harvard, you know. And so he would say, well, there's this guy. He's running a reading series. He's sincere, and so I said yes. And the first time I said no for somebody, nothing happened. Right. He was fine. Yep. Not Michael's taste. He uh, and he I, like Nate Mackey. I had gone landed on Bill and said, "Do you know this <laughs> this book? This guy, you know?" And Bill's going, like, "No, no." And the next thing, Bill came and said, "Want me, Mackey, to read for you?" I think. I think he'd be interested. I said, "Hell yes, yeah you know and and hook me up with him and that work and stuff and so it just and as that started to circulate, all that and we go back it, this is like a broken record, forgive me, but it goes back to Bill Graham and what I said about arriving at the top of the stairs. It was a community of people listening yeah and that's what I wanted
0: one verb that you kept using was noticing that's what that's what I want to touch on because this morning and last night I was thinking about uh, what am I might talk to Michael about. And one of the things that I was remembering from reading your books and thinking about our conversation, previous conversation and this conversation is that noticing, noticing the everyday, noticing uh, those signs, notice just keeping that attention open, yeah. which is something that is, seems crucial to you.
1: The, yeah. To say it's the center is absolutely no exaggeration. It's the center of everything for me. Right. Um, uh, as as early as seventeen, uh, I came across the phrase "daily living can be existing." Well, if I you would, trying, yes, yeah. exactly. And if you go through the book of measure carefully, you will find that phrase flipped in, in a jillion different ways as an overtone. Uh, to to the work because that it, is a wonderful phrase. It really is. I had no idea what it meant, you know, at, at seventeen. But because you, it, that led me towards you know, the, you know. Can you can you know can you notice the black dog running towards you, yeah. and not uh, have the response that society uh, kind of wants you to have, which is oh for God's sakes, you know, <laughs> this ain't no fucking mythic experience. This right. is just a fucking old black dog um i i don't don't think i've ever seen another old lady carrying roses around you know so i don't know what the hell that was all about right but you know i took it as being uh profound yes uh and and it was was. the problem is is that these experiences they don't have currency necessarily to anybody else but you yeah and so that's what i mean when i say it's a it's something that you practice because it sort of seems to me like the whole world is going, move on, move on, move on, you know. Don't get lost in this, you know. Where I want to stop and say, did you, did you notice that? You're right. You know, and and I, I'm, I mean, to, to too much of an extent, but I, I really have this thing where I, I try to stop and collect something. And I think this becomes, uh, is, is the result of moving all the time as a child. Because really early, uh, and when I say early, I would say as early as fourth grade, I had the absolute thought that I was standing looking at something for the last time and I would never be in this existence again. And then all of a sudden, you know, after a road trip, I would be in this other place. And it would be it, it was a pain in the ass because it, The circulation has to start all over again. You have to meet somebody else. Yeah, and uh, and and then yeah, you know, and they think you're a jerk and then you meet somebody else and they think you're actually okay and and then there's the people that I would miss that thought you were okay but because of some preconceived idea that you had you hadn't noticed that they actually didn't think you were a jerk and so I, I, I was always kind of alarmed to make sure that I was noticing if, if if there were, you know, compatriots around or, and this all, I mean, you could, if anybody's listening to this, you, this all this weaves <laughs> into the, you know, why would I want to start a community? Right. I right, mean, right. it seems perfectly. right
0: And stage, that noticing you know, is also generosity. It's so also a generosity to yourself to, to pay attention, not just go through the motions, not just. Do what society is telling you to do, not just fill in the blanks and pigeonholes and take the right boxes, but it's like, no, wait, I'm just gonna take an extra five seconds just to be here, yeah, and that's that's it. There's nothing.
1: But also with that, I I mean, I still, uh, you know, feel that of, you know, can I hold this moment? Yes. How long can I hold this moment for? Because I really do know. Um, that it's going to go away. My child, go back to your your circumstances. Uh, Tomorrow's probably ten. And he came into the living room. And he said, "Can I ask you something about time?" And I was like, "Sure." What? You know, this is coming out of a ten-year-old's mouth. He says, "Well," he said, I-, "I don't understand." He said, "I'm here, but I can remember you and me at the wood stove." When I was little, burning up my messages to Santa for Christmas. And I remember that person that I was. Huh. Clearly, yeah. Papa, clearly I can remember him. You know, that was me, but it's not me. I'm me. But, and I don't know what, and I said, stop. <laughs> you know, your kid's gonna explode. I said, you've landed upon one of the great mysteries, you know. Uh, uh, and I feel like I've got all these exist- existences inside of me. Right. Uh, I felt for the longest time that it was uh, not generous at all. It was an act of pure, unadulterated self-preservation and selfishness that I wanted to pull all this stuff in, grab hold of it, reach out to somebody because I wanted you to come over. I wanted you to be, I wanted, I wanted, I wanted, and right. it's the same thing Bill asked me. Did you ever stop to think that you, know, that you got something? I never, I thought I did you, you know, a favor, right. you know, talking Duncan with you, and, and, and I owe you that. And, um, and because of all that I've gotten, you hear all that I in there. I've gotten all this out of Duncan, all his life, and, and, uh, and, and the reason I'm in Portugal is because of Robert Duncan, right? Because right. the, the professor had come to me, the now professor had come to me over Robert Duncan. So I owe him and I owe poetry and I I should have Antonio over, you know? And so the, the it, it, to me, for the longest time, it was the, the greatest act of self-indulgence, selfishness, only childish. I create my own world and I, you know, prop up everything in it. And it never really dawned on me or I never really thought of that I was actually putting stuff out. It was yeah. not until people started saying, we really we felt comfortable coming to your reading series. Yeah. And it was like, and I would kind of toss it up, well, that's exactly what I'm trying to do, you know, and instead of realizing, oh, shut up, you made somebody feel comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. kind of fun, yeah. you know, it, it's, and what more do you really need? Yeah. And, uh, and that's uh, the more healthy side of me, uh, as with Mr. Torres saying, you know, what, what more do you need for the universe to say to you at this particular moment? I, I do ask myself that question kind of frequently, right. it's like, shut up, you know? Yeah, shut up You know, and and, attention. You know things, things are weird, Things this is happening, that's happening, but this is also happening. And I, I'm lucky enough that I the woman I married will, will come in and say, hey, stop! <laughs> you <know? laughs> Don't you realize that how this is all happening? You've got this going on and that going on. And um, uh, uh, you know, I stumbled across the other day uh, the website for the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco, has a guy doing an article and he's saying, it's about Jess. Mm-hmm. And he's saying there were three celebrations of uh, Robert Duncan's centennial this year uh, one here, one in Paris, and one in Somerville, Massachusetts. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, it was like. And so the healthy me, the person that's not sitting there going, nobody likes my work, nobody likes me, people are tired of me talking too much, uh, the healthy me says, you know, There's a signpost, you know, what more do you need? And, you know, come on.
0: And it was a wonderful celebration.
1: And in the case of the Duncan thing, I sent out invitations to you uh, in particular and a couple other people like Christopher, um, Ed Foster and stuff, where I came directly at them. But I put out a blanket invitation. Ron Silman, who sent a lovely little short note saying, I would really like to have been able to come to this, but I'm going to be in Kansas that weekend. Totally unnecessary. I don't know him. Yeah, you know, totally unnecessary. But what happened was, is that we ended up with all those kids here from Philadelphia ah. and upstate New York. Uh, I'm still getting stuff from them, and they're what they're doing. They've got a little magazine called The Swan, which is actually, it's starting to be significant. It's small, and and, and, and you know in bulk and uh, easily digested. And mm-hmm. there's articles in there that I want to read, you know, and they're sending them to me. They were all here. They were excited. You know, uh, people like Brenda Ejima came up from New York. And and what, one of the things that Isabel always says is that the people that were supposed to be here, were here, yeah. you know? And the people that missed it, they didn't miss anything. They just, they don't get that experience. But to me, it was quietly on the map. And, and early on, that was one of the things that happened with the old reading series is that we were always, the group of, of poets that were kind of flowing, we were always kind of put off by what was going on in Buffalo because the whole Buffalo scene in the 80s and early 90s really kind of lifted up and started to be quite energetic. And they had a magazine and, and there was a lot of people doing good work, people we liked, never asked us for stuff. Right. You know, and not, not once did we get, you know, hey, we, we, we should reach out to them. They were happy to come read, you know, but it, it was like this sort of exasperating thing. And yet one night I'm sitting like after a reading and uh, somebody said, oh, you know, word of mouth. My God, this stuff I've heard about that. And they were f- from Buffalo. And they were talking about it like it was some legendary thing that we were doing. And we're all there kind of laughing at this, you know. Yeah, yeah. Really, and it was, you know, because, I, I mean, I, early on, we did a whole reading of After Lorca by Spicer that was broken oh, out but, for all these different, and yeah. that was in the early 90s, yeah. way before the, the whole Spicer movement. And that was simply because I discovered Spicer was going crazy, and it's like, well, we should do something with this, right, you know. Right. Let's read it. And they were reading this in Buffalo as being, at an activity level that we couldn't even imagine, that it was being read as. You know what? I, does yeah, that yeah, make yeah, sense? Yeah. So, uh, so you don't always get to know. Yeah. You know. You know what's what's going on, and, and that's and that's what I say. You know, it, it, in the to put the best light on things, you don't know. None of us know when somebody has opened your book and is sitting on the floor of their room, at, at and this is the last straw. And, and what they're reading in your book, they kind of go. <sighs> yeah. Okay. You know, maybe this is worth doing. Maybe it is worth p- pursuing. Art. I love art. Maybe I, I should keep going because I can do it better than this guy. <laughs> you know. Well,
0: and that that brings me to one thing uh, that I do want to touch upon is because we saw each other the last time was the, the Duncan uh, reading, okay. um, and uh, well then the pandemic hit. Right. I went into the lockdown. I wanted to ask you. How did the, the the pandemic, the fact of this global event, how does that change in the way you perceive your everyday? Like, what was what was it like to you in terms of your relation to poetry, your relation to books, reading in general? Well, it actually
1: it, it all sits on top of what we've been talking about about community, uh, because I, I mean, my life pre pandemic, uh, and especially pre. Uh, leaving the restaurant business right. which is how i make my income and I i don't make money off of books i made had to have a living and i, I had never had any notion of academic work or teaching and i don't think i have a talent for it to be honest and so the restaurant always seemed to be this incredible interruption i mean i only worked two or three days a week but it was always it was like all of a sudden i'd arrive at the weekend again it's like shit if i just had those extra two days Well then the restaurant closed and I said, I'm not going back to this nonsense, it's a stupid way to make money. And suddenly I had all this time, you know, and it took a long time to manage that time. Uh, And I sort of had an inkling that that little interruption every week actually had a function of kind of slapping me and saying, you know, remember what you're trying to do here and what you want to do, and yeah, you meet some interesting wonderful I, I I mean some of the people I met through the restaurant and and some of the big famous people that came through there uh, it was wonderful but um when the pandemic came along uh suddenly instead of you know trying to isolate myself, I was isolated but yeah, and it's yeah. two different things two I discovered. Very and that little the little walk down the hill to go to the like the events at Harvard or or whatever, or whoever's reading around here, running into you and having a quick chat or running out for a beer with somebody, which I mean I was doing maybe once a month. Right. And it was enough. And the absence of that was noticeable. Yeah. And so it's not I realized it's not like I, you know. I, I, I always like, I never go out. I drive Isabel crazy because she's like your wife and she, she loves walks. She's just constantly just arranging stuff that she's doing, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I've always, and my son's the same way. I think it's an only child thing where I need a lot of just down, no fuss time, you know? Yeah. And I, uh, uh, as an adult, I made that time for myself, you know, whether it was with work where I, it was a constant battle to say, I have another job, you know, I, I'm a writer. I can only come here three days a week, two days a right. week, whatever. And and yet it's not—I I don't want nothing. I don't want to be behind—I always thought the stories of Picasso with the, the the door closed to the to the chateau and his wife would go down and say, oh, you know, the senor is not seeing people today, you know. Right. Oh, shit. That's my bread <laughs> but it's fine. Do you need it, to go? Up? No, no, it can it can go a little longer. Okay. Um, so the idea of there's there's creating time to work and then there's isolation. Yeah. And the isolation is is fucking distasteful. Yeah. And I think it's uh, for me, strictly for me, I mean it's been a combination of uh, you know, I was already, I uh, you know, isolated in many ways, because I also noticed that there's a lot of people. You know, that, you know, Facebook is horrible for this. You realize all your pals are out at the place in Davis Square, and nobody said do you want to come. Uh, most of that is because they think I won't come. It's like if people say, "Come out afterwards." I said, "No, I got to go home and cook for the family," right. and I'm booking off after the reading. And after a while, people don't say, "Michael, come on, right. you know, let's go." And so I, I'm constantly teasing my child, I said, make sure you invite your friends, <laughs> you know, let them say no, because you want, you want to be able to say no. It's a great thing to be able to say no and think, right. you know, I was included, but I don't have to go. And the absence of all that really started the weigh on me. And I think that um, the cultural upheaval that we've been through for the last two years as well. And then uh, I turned 70 in February. Oh, wow. Oh, wow, indeed. Uh, nothing like turning 60 or 50 was, uh, the, the metaphor I can give you, it's like somebody came and knocked on the door and said, we should give you a room with a view. (laughs) And they usher you into this place and you're looking out, you know, over the landscape and you go, uh-oh, you know, and I, and I, I, I laugh and giggle, but there's also, uh, I mean, it's, it's a profound little bitch slap of time moving, uh, much more quickly than I, I can see it, it's starting to pop up in the book as I work. So that's marked for right now as being whatever the end of the book of measure will be. So I've volume one is what you have, volume two is in manuscript and finished, and I'm working on. Whatever is Volume Three is going to be, and it's all over the place. To be honest with you, this stuff that's going on, but that sh- in my head right now should be the end. And there was this really profound feeling: is I need to clean this up and make sure things are clear uh, of you know to what what to lose, what not to lose, and uh, but here's where to end up in, in the whole thing. And I had that thought, but that thought came, I mean, that whole section was one big slam of just start to finish. It knocked out in the morning, I think. And when I got to the end of that, I sat there looking and I went, okay, (laughs) I know what's going on here. Um, uh, I mean, you you literally have Odysseus sitting with Argos, uh, who's a ghost, right, uh, at that point because uh, which i'd forgotten that Argos dies after he gets home, and so he's sitting at the beach, everything's done, the false suitors are cleared out of the house you know and um and he's there alone uh, with all those stories and adventures uh in his head
0: oh wow yeah
1: right and and that i mean and that's that's been my whole life is and when we talk about like moving and stuff is that I have always had this Kept everybody in my head from the last place I lived, really profoundly. Right. As there should, I had a professor that talked about presumed intimacy, you know. And and because I, the first time I went back someplace, it was it was nice, but it, you suddenly realized everybody had gone on. You know? yeah, yeah. And to me, we're still. It's like we're pals, and you know. And, and they're like, great to see you. I, you know, gotta go. Yeah. But like the, the gang of people, uh, we're, we're now in touch again from high school days, from San Francisco high school days. Right. And I, I can't, I've, it's sort of a, a lovely discomfort, but I can't really measure how much I mean to them. And I say that not in a despairing way, but only in that it's really weird how much they mean to me as fixtures in that daily living we're talking about. Right. And I still have, I'm blessed because the teacher who really brought me forward in poetry is still alive, oh, really? and still writing, and still oh. doing all sorts. Of, she's working on her next book, she's 93, and um, and includes me in her uh, universe of things at, at, in California. Um, in fact, she uh, is, uh, write. Yeah, after I saw you last, uh, she brought me and Isabel, flew us to San Francisco, for a book publication party for her book. Oh, great! And because she wanted me to come and read, yeah. and I brought that big '60s poem, which if if you I don't know if you remember that one, but it lists out all the people that are lost, and and there's, there's a line in there that says, "Bring back my friends," because right. all this stuff has occurred and we've all been dispersed. Well since then, especially with Facebook, and think we have gotten back together, the people that are still alive. Well, I said to her, you know, I should read that poem because if she's in it and her companion, uh, her life companion is in it, I said, it'd be a great thing. I'll read that for you. Well, then all the people that are in it showed up at the reading. Oh, wow.
0: That's I'm
1: awesome. sitting there going, I right, thought this was a great idea. But then, and this goes, what I was trying to express is that I don't know. There's still a presence in my mind and my heart, like as much as you are, and that doesn't diminish you at all, that brings them up. I don't know how much a presence I am in their imaginations of, of daily life, but with Fran Collaget, uh, I mean, it's every day. Uh, I mean, there, it, whatever poetry is, was brought to me by her. Uh, Robert Duncan was brought to me by her, a sense in her classroom, a sense of the poem. And that I picked up again from him because the poem was a thing. It wasn't an achievement or it was, a, a, it was a, a, almost a philosophy of the poem, you know, <laughs> as, as a place of existence and meaning and significance and insignificance and achievement and failure and all those things going on at once, right? And that was introduced by her because she was introducing all these, there was this world of poets that she introduced as a real thing right you know not some made up stuff right you of know yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so every day I live in this an uh, imagined world and it's been hard to sort out because I lived in that imagined world as a kid when we move right you know so I'm sitting I've moved from Virginia to uh, that move yeah we moved from Virginia to California couldn't have been more different you know and uh, and and California was rough making friends and stuff because there was I mean it was 4th grade and then we moved at uh in the beginning of 5th grade we moved over the summer up to San Francisco and I spent half of the year in San Francisco and then and that in while in San Francisco I got split up between two different schools because they were had an overflow so I had to move schools there you know and it was just this constant little pocket of people and it, you would start to get have a friend or a pal, and the next thing you were swept away. Yep. And they were left behind, but they were, you know, and because I was alone, your thoughts returned to those people, yep. right? So, um, and, and, I, and basically, I did that when I came here. My, my girlfriend came to Harvard, and so I was ripped out of the house. I tease her about this, you know, I was forced to move to, to, to Boston by her. And it was not a choice. I didn't choose to move until Isabel and I bought this house. Right. And I was semi-comatose just going through that <laughs> move, you know. But yes. all those worlds—I uh, mean—and I can't emphasize this enough. I don't think, but all the activities and all the daily living and all the noticing and all the practice of all that and the stuff of those worlds um, is is so uh, commanding in my head. You know uh, that, it, and and I I've realized as an adult that that's the practice of poetry that I want to somehow articulate.
0: I have a very different, I like talk about mistakes or not mistakes, just ways in which my life didn't go to, according to plan. I was supposed to be a professor, like that was the thing, and everything went wrong. Yeah. And all of a sudden, like you know what, everything I just want. Right. And <laughs> if it, everything went right, yeah. I want to be a poet, and that's. And I don't need to teach literature. I can teach language to make my living, and I can write my poetry.
1: You know, my wake up was I, I, I sat there and said, "I am paying money to read the same books that I'd be sitting in my living room reading without having to write it in on paper and spend all night trying to get it in. Right, right. You know, why am I doing this to myself? And, and I just literally walked off. just yeah. stopped. I think I'm seven units shy of graduation, you know) <laughs> and i went off and i went to printing school and uh, and, yep. and started that whole pursuit yeah, so yeah, yeah but i mean it, and that's it, we can we could uh, actually touch on form here because uh, form to me is not uh, an affectation but it's a, it's a realizing how the presence of life and consciousness works and it's a, a never ending unfinished unfinishable story yep. right and our stories, it's never ending, unfinishable stories that just are constantly going on. and You can grip them and enjoy them and cherish them, hold on to the ones you can, you know, uh, maybe retell. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know, but um, I also notice the older you get, the more, you know, like the, the little embellishments start to, <laughs> you yeah. and so, and you'll leave out the ugly parts and, and all that stuff that goes on. But the idea that of, you know, a clean-cut beginning, middle, and end, is right. is really a terrible model of consciousness. Yes, that's not the way it works. And I've always wondered what that does to us. And that's not to say. I mean, I've been reading uh, Mon's Death in Venice recently. Right. And there's nothing more beautiful or tighter, and in its complexity and its structure and its um, outreaching spirals of significance. Yeah. And yet absolutely beginning, middle, and end, you know, like a a, a finely made little crafted cabinet. So it's not to disparage that um, at all, but I'm also really aware that that's not what I want to articulate. I want to articulate what it, I mean, I want that kid or that adult that is sitting, you know, going, here I am again. Everybody's gone. Uh, you know, for one reason or another, either, I, you know, I, I, I was an asshole last night or I've moved. That's the range, right. you know, and, but you find yourself alone again and starting again. And the, the healthiest thing you can do and what dear wife Isabel does to me constantly is, is constantly say, let's start again. Just start again. You know, it's okay. That's what you've always done. Just yeah. start it. Just do it. You can't know the outcome. Yep. And that's what we, want. we really do want, you know, that information. You know, if I, if I have the Duncan Conference, is it going to be significant? And, um, and there are people that, so they have their intentions beat out of them by the fact that that never occurs. You don't get to know most of the time. Yep. You don't get to know that the guy's pulling your poem out on his birthday.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You know, why that poem means everything to that guy I don't know. Yeah. You know, it, but it, it's, I mean, who could, and again, we go back to where we started, who could ask for anything more, but you have to steel yourself and practice so that you can overcome the wash of nilism, you know, that, that the kids, and I remember Duncan saying that when he was in his 20s, he said, around me, there were at least 10 poets that were better than me, and he said, suddenly. In our late 20s, one after another, after another, just stopped, yep. and I could never understand. I, he said, and I mean that profoundly. I never understood how could you not write. Right. You know, I couldn't. If you told me, you know, you weren't going to write anymore, I, I just don't see any point to it. I, I, it. It would make as little sense as you saying, "I'm, I have a spaceship waiting outside. I'm going to go in it." It'd be like right. that's right. ridiculous. How can you do that?